All right, I'm here for the rest of the time now. Well, good morning once again. As you can tell, I am the last of the three stooges. I will be preaching in absence of uh, Jack being in Brazil, ministering to the saints over there. Now, as the third stooge to appear before you, I'm not quite sure which one that makes me, but I can assure you that I'm not wearing anything pink, nor do I have, nor do I feel the need to. I can also assure you that there are no incriminating YouTube videos of me in a police uniform performing any extreme police maneuvers with Mission Impossible music playing in the background. I don't know if Brody wanted me to tell you that or not, but... (laughs) So with that, I will let you decide who's who in the Three Stooge classification. But in light of this morning's subject matter, I assure you I have no problem being a stooge. In fact, why don't we just go ahead and you can call me Curly and we'll just leave it at that. Well, this morning I want to start out our time together playing a little game. As a children's pastor, this is kind of what I do, so I'll just bring this over into you guys a little bit. How many of you have ever heard of the game Tri-Bond? All right. You know, the first hour didn't do it either. Maybe it's just... um, Does there ever play any games or no? That's kind of a cool game. Well, let me give you a a brief little explanation of the game. Tribond is a game that asks players to identify what is the common link between three different items. So, for example, if I were to ask you, what do these three have in common? Refrigerators, track stars, and nylons. Refrigerators, track stars, and nylons... Yep, you guess they are things that run. Very nicely done. So here's another one, since that one was so easy. What do these three have in common? This one's easy too, so don't worry. Florida, a locksmith, and a piano. Keys, right? They all have keys. That is the correct answer. This is the game of Tribon. It's pretty fun. Now... I gave you the easy ones just because I wanted to build you guys' confidence up a little bit. But I, I made up my own. And this one might be a little more difficult because it didn't come in a nice little box. It wasn't a, a real easy one. But I'm going to ask it anyway. And I want you to tell me, what do these three have in common? A hanging picture, a ship in a bottle, and a turtle sitting atop a fence. A hanging picture a ship in a bottle, and a turtle sitting atop a fence. Well, if you guessed that they are things that had help getting there, (laughs) then you would be correct. (laughs) Now, I want you to humor me a little bit here because I'm a children's pastor, and I want you to pretend with me. And I want you to pretend that each of those items that I just told you and my little freezer riddle there. Suppose that they could talk. Nothing else beyond this, this rare ability to be able to talk. They don't have any other abilities other than just what they would normally be able to do. But assume that they have the ability to talk. The hanging picture, the ship in a bottle, and the turtle sitting atop a fence. And suppose that as each of these three things began to talk, they began to brag about how they got to their respective places. Suppose that the picture started bragging about how hard he had worked in order to find just the right size nail, how difficult it was for him then to pound that nail into the wall, and then lastly, how much he had to strain and struggle and position himself just so that he sat perfectly level and secure against the wall. And then upon hearing that, suppose that the ship started to chime in and he bragged to you about how difficult it was for him to maneuver himself through that small little opening on the bottle, how great his skill was to ensure that he passed safely through the bottle without damaging any part of his hull or mast or sails, just how he had to get himself in there just right. And then imagine after that, that the turtle finally speaks and he starts bragging about how much muscle and determination it took for him to climb all the way to the top of that fence. He boasts of his training regiment, whereby he limited his eating to nothing but fruits and vegetables, and he worked out three times a day. How would you feel 
as you sat there listening to the boasting of these three things, knowing full well that each of them, despite their boast, despite their great claims, had gotten to where they were because somebody had really placed them there. How would you feel as you sat there and listened? These three insignificant things would probably irk us as we sat there and listened because we know that they were trying to take the credit for something they didn't deserve the credit for, something they didn't and couldn't have done. And yet I ask you, how many times do you and I attempt to boast about things that we have done? How many times do we seek to take the credit for that which God is truly responsible for? The problem that most of us have is the fact that we fail to practice humility. The Bible has much to say about humility and our need to practice it. And this morning, we're going to try to unpack a few biblical truths that will hopefully help us to rightly view ourselves and to rightly view God such that we might grow in humility and in our practice of it. Now, before we launch into our study this morning, I feel the need to let you know that I come to you not as one who has mastered the art of humility, but rather I come to you as a fellow sinner who is seeking to hear and obey the voice of his Lord and Savior such that I might turn from my pride and bring glory to the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power. So with that in mind, let us just open up our time in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word and thanking you for giving us this opportunity to open it up and to see what it has to say about humility and pride. Lord, I pray that you will just continue to work in these hearts of ours. Continue to show us, Lord, who you are and who we are. And Lord, give us the grace to be the people that your word calls us to be. Lord, I pray for every person that is here this morning. I pray that you will just help them to set aside any distractions that may be running through their minds right now, Lord. And I pray that you will really help them to focus and to pay attention and to examine their own hearts in light of the things that we'll be talking about. Lord, may you just do this and help us all to turn from our pride and to start practicing humility in the way that your word calls us to. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Open up your Bibles with me this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And this is what the Word of God says. For consider your calling, brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, in today's text, we find three truths that, if learned, are sure to grow us in humility. Three truths that, when embraced, will go a long way in helping each of us to properly view ourselves and God. So the first truth that we must learn is God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. Listen to verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The church in Corinth was going through a lot of growing pains and there were a lot of 
arguments and a lot of bickering that was taking place within that body. The good news that had once brought this body together was slowly being pushed aside as individual believers sought to pursue the wisdom of their day, sought to embrace the arguments of the culture rather than the gospel. So in an effort to draw them back to the gospel, Paul reminds these brethren of the superiority of God's wisdom. A few verses back, you can see where he makes his argument how God's foolishness is wiser than the the greatest wisdom of the world. He reminds them that they were not saved because of their intellects, their great intellects, or their ability to influence the masses, or even their high social standings. These were things that the Corinthian believers simply didn't possess. In fact, Paul makes it painfully clear that the Corinthian believers were not a group that was comprised of such individuals. Not that they didn't have any. There were not many. The Corinthians were a group of people that really had no basis for asserting superiority over another because for all intents and purposes, they were a group that lacked wisdom, that lacked power, and that had, for all intents and purposes, no status. They were a bunch of nobodies. And Paul wanted them to remember this, not so that he could beat them up, but because he wanted them to understand that God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to salvation. In other words, he does not care who or what you are in regards to the world standards. That simply doesn't impress God. God is not drawn to the, the beautiful people. His kingdom is primarily made up of a bunch of nobodies. And the reason he does this, the reason he calls a bunch of nobodies to himself is so that he can totally shatter the wisdom of the world. I mean, Christianity was a religion that was despised by the upper classes of people. In fact, a philosopher by the name of Celsus wrote regarding Christians in 178 AD. Just listen. Listen to the the tone and the attitude behind these words. He says this. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let them come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. What Celsus saw as the death blow to Christianity, the fact that it could only appeal to the the lessers, Paul saw as Christianity's greatness. Worldly wisdom will tell you that if you really want to see a movement take off, then just make sure that you got the the intellectual people. Just make sure that you got the beautiful people. Make sure you got those that have a lot of gifts and talents. Make sure you got the, the, the decision makers, those that are powerful. That's how you get a movement to move forward. You get those types of people and things will take off from there. Worldly wisdom will tell you that if you're going to get anywhere, then you need to have the right people in your camp. Otherwise, close up the doors. It's not going to work. According to the world, there is no need for the weak or the needy. They simply just get in the way and they prohibit real progress from being made. Worldly wisdom only makes room for winners and it discards those that cannot carry their weight. In Corinth, we're told that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And yet, the maker of these nobodies saw fit to bring this group of nobodies into his family, to adopt them as his children, to make this group of nobodies joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And you know what? The world, the world can't understand that. 
The world doesn't, doesn't get that. The things that, that elevate a man in their system, they just don't understand how that doesn't apply into Christianity, namely knowledge, influence, and rank, how that does nothing to improve a man's position with God. It does nothing to get a man into the kingdom of God. They, they just don't get that. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear when he prays to his father in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. You know, it's not as if Jesus is unwilling to save those who are wise or intelligent. It's just that oftentimes these people get so caught up in trusting in their own ability that it prevents them from, from turning to God. They don't really get the fact that they're, they're lost. They don't really understand that they are in need of a Savior because from their perspective, they've got all of the answers. They know what it takes to live and to thrive and to function in the world. They have a hard time in seeing their need for a savior. And Jesus made it perfectly clear when speaking to the Pharisees in Luke 5, 31 through 32, that it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was Jesus's ministry. That's what he came to do. The world's wisdom stands in direct opposition, though, to God's wisdom. And while the world seeks to justify itself through its own standards, God seeks to demolish those standards by calling and saving those who the world views as insignificant. In writing to the Corinthian believers, Paul wanted to ensure that they would not be drawn away from the wisdom of God, the wisdom that had saved them despite their less than impressive achievements and pedigrees. Without question, God's call of the insignificant conflicts with worldly wisdom. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, which wisdom are you going to cling to? Which wisdom has the ability to offer you eternal life? Which wisdom is acceptable to the one you will one day stand before in order to give an account of your life? Which one is better. If you and I were to be honest with ourselves, many of us would have to admit that we don't really measure up very well with the world's standards. We're not part of the educational elite, at least none that I'm aware of. As far as I know, I mean, I'm not part of the educational elite. As far as I know, we don't have any world-renowned thinkers amongst us that are teaching at any of the Ivy League schools, nor do we have any big-time players in the political realm that are advising the President of the United States or uh, implementing foreign policies that are impacting the entire world. And the last time I checked, when I went on to the Forbes Top 50 Most uh, Richest People uh, we didn't have anybody in our church that was related to uh, Gates, Buffett, or Walton. If you know them, though, we have a building we're trying to build. So, <laughs> I think that it would be appropriate for Paul's remarks in verse 26, though, to be applied to many of us that are here right now. So, brothers and sisters of Calvary Bible Church, I ask you to consider your calling that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Let us never be a people who attempt to consider ourselves as being superior to one another, but instead let each of us regard one another as being more important than ourselves. Let us never delude ourselves into thinking that we are in any way superior to one another because of some worldly standard or measure, something that we have accomplished in this life that now makes us better than others. 
especially within the body here of of Christ. The moment that you and I start to appeal to worldly wisdom is the moment that we find ourselves in direct conflict with God's wisdom. By remembering the utter insignificance of our lives prior to our calling, you and I can begin to practice the humility that is to be ours in Christ Jesus, which leads us to a second truth that we must learn if we are to grow in humility. God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. Let's look at verses 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. There is perhaps no greater condemning sin than the sin of pride. Some believe, and I would put myself in this camp, some believe that it is the root, pride is the root of all sin. In a sermon entitled Pride, Humility, and God, John Stott spoke these words. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. C.S. Lewis had this to say about pride. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, and drunkenness are, are mere flea biters in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you and I are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. The Bible makes a strong case that there is perhaps no sin that is more offensive to God than pride. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 17, it says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, and I'll stop right there, because it is the first thing that appears on the list. It is pride. In Proverbs eight thirteen, it states, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate Pride, once again, tops the list of the things that the Lord hates. In Proverbs 16.5, we are told, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. If you and I are to grow in humility, then we must see our pride as the hideous, destructive monster that it really is. And we must begin to see ourselves as the poor, weak, base nobodies that we really are. Until we see ourselves rightly, until we see ourselves for who we really are, we will never grow in true humility. And I do not tell you this so that you'll crawl out of here like some type of a worm, but rather I tell you all of this because too many of us think way too highly of ourselves. Too many of us view ourselves with such high esteem that we fail to make room for God to sit on his throne. We contend with our maker for supremacy and we kid ourselves into thinking that we are far more than we really are. I mean, have you ever just stopped and thought about who you are? I mean, let's just assume that you have something that the world esteems. Let's just assume that, you know what? I wasn't aware of your credentials earlier when I said that, you know what? We're a bunch of nobodies here. Let's just say I missed something that, that really makes you a somebody in the world's standards. Something that the world esteems. 
But let me ask you this, assuming I missed that. Where did that ability come from? How responsible are you really for that talent or ability? On 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul seeks to obliterate the personal pride of the Corinthians by asking the following. He says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Good question. I I grew up watching and playing sports, and I've seen a lot of incredibly talented athletes. I mean, athletes that can just make your jaw drop because they're able to do things that us average people just can't can't do. Things that they just make look so easy. They don't even think about it. They just do it. And a lot of these athletes, after they've done something uh, notable, after they've done something to electrify those that are watching with their athletic abilities, a lot of times they'll do something that is a, a total affront to God. They give themselves all of the credit and all of the recognition for their act of athleticism. But again, I ask you, who gave them the ability? I mean, I could spend the rest of my life, every hour in the gym. I know it's, you know, (laughs) kind of a laughable thought, me doing something like that. But, I could spend the rest of my life in the gym and still not look like some of these people and not be able to have the athleticism of some of these people because it's just not not made that way. Now, granted, they have to work, but they have, they have that within them to be able to do that. I mean, if I wanted to become the greatest basketball player around, okay, I work real hard. What happens when I step out on the court against like Kobe Bryant? What's going to happen? Even if I worked really hard, he's got something I don't. Height for one thing. (laughs) But who gave him that ability? Who, Who made him? You know, but sports isn't the only realm in which This egotistical self-praise takes place. It's just as rampant in the academic circles as it is in the sports world. There are people that have incredible minds. I mean, they're able to think and reason through things that average people just can't. And they, they just process it. They're able to synthesize everything and bring it all together and figure it all out. And they just have minds that are just constantly going. And they're just clicking and they can figure out all these things. And while they may not get up in front of a camera and boast of their greatness like some of these athletes do, I assure you that if there was a market for it and there was a camera that was going around filming these people and it was acceptable, they would be just as boisterous and just as self-elevating as the athletes are. But instead, these highbrows, because the market's not there for them to get the recognition, these highbrows like to talk in a condescending manner to people. They like to talk about things that they know people don't understand just because they can. But again, I ask you, who gave these people the ability to think and reason like they do? Who created their minds? I mean, did God have to give them a mind that could think clearly? Did they have to be born where they're born to have the opportunities that they had? How much of that did they really control? Stop and think about that. We are a people who love to take credit for those things that are beyond our control. I mean, we like to elevate our particular giftedness above all the others so that we can esteem ourselves and boast of our greatness, even if we're the only ones who know about it. Our personal pride cries for the spotlight. 
It seeks the attention and it is willing to crush anybody or anything that dares to get in its way. But you and I must become painfully aware of the smallness of our greatness. We must see ourselves rightly and we must begin to measure ourselves not against the character and attributes of others, but rather in accordance to the character and attributes of God. I mean, it can be real easy, gentlemen, sometimes, can it, to just find some slob of a husband and compare yourself to him and just say, I'm not like that. My wife should never complain about me because you know what? She could have it really bad and she could be married to somebody like that. Wives, I know you would never do this, but don't you ever look at at other women and just say, boy, if my husband ever complains about me again, uh, he's got nothing to complain because he could be married to her, right? We just love to compare ourselves to people that are in our minds below us. But instead, we should compare ourselves to the character and the attributes of somebody who's above us. Listen to this quote by Philip Brooks. And it's a great quote. I challenge you to listen to it. He made this apt comment when he said this. He said, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself. But to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. So in other words, don't compare yourself to others, but rather compare yourself to the one that is far above you and then see. See how great you are. See, see how wonderful you are in comparison to God. God's word is perfectly clear in revealing our true condition before him. Each of us is truly, truly insignificant compared to the one who simply spoke the world and all it contains into existence. We cannot help but be moved to humility as we compare ourselves to the one who is perfect. If you ever start feeling prideful, just go and measure yourself up against the life of Jesus Christ. And see if you still walk away with that same arrogance, that same boastful pride. Paul was a man who understood this. And it was his understanding of this truth. Of the need to compare ourselves to somebody who is perfect that that continued to move him downward in his view of himself over the passing years. Just follow along his digression as the years go by. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.9, which was written about A.D. 59, he says, I am the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians 3.8, which was written about A.D. 63, he says this, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. But then in 1 Timothy 1.15, which was written about A.D. 64, Paul writes this, I am the foremost of sinners. Paul's view of himself became more and more accurate as he grew in his knowledge and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. In view of who who Christ is, Paul saw himself as an insignificant, rebellious sinner who had nothing, nothing in which to boast of save Christ crucified. The more we come face to face with our own insignificance, the more we will grow in humility. The more we see God for who he really is, the more our personal pride will be confounded and ultimately put to death. John Flavel closes up this section rather well when he writes these words. He says, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Well, thus far in our study, we've seen that God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. Secondly, we have learned that God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride, which now leads us to our third and final truth, which is this. God's call of the insignificant confirms his matchless mercy. God's call of the insignificant confirms his matchless mercy. Follow along as we look at verses 30 and 31. 
But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a great truth we see in these last two passages. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice by whose doing we are in Christ Jesus. Who is the one who is doing that? I I want you to notice who's responsible for us believing the gospel. As you look at what's written there, you'll see that God is the one. He is the one that makes it possible for believers everywhere to be in Christ. And as we've already learned, it's, it's not our great worldly wisdom. It's not our might or it's not even our great family lineage that enables us to be called children of God. No, it is strictly by God's matchless mercy that you and I are saved. And you know what? This is evidenced both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see God's mercy displayed in passages like Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, where it says this. The Lord did not set his love on you nation of Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. And the New Testament continues this very same thing. We see his mercy displayed in passages like Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. These passages and many, many others just like them help us to clearly see that our salvation is not due to ourselves, but rather to God and to his matchless mercy. And it is his mercy that is grounded in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ becomes to us wisdom from God. It is, the, it is Christ who was in the beginning with God. It is Christ who is the living word who took on flesh and came to dwell amongst us, full of grace and truth and revealing his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, according to John 1.14. It is Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, according to Colossians 2.9. And according to Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Therefore... It is our union with Christ that makes us truly wise. It is our union with Christ that makes us truly wise. He is the wisdom from God in the sense that there is no other name under heaven by which you and I are to be saved. Jesus confirms this point in in John 14, 6, when when he proclaims, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ has become the believer's wisdom. Not in a worldly sense like the Corinthians and many others might have been seeking, but rather in the salvific sense. In the salvific sense whereby those who hear and obey his teachings, they are made wise unto salvation. And it is this divine wisdom, this wisdom from above that Paul goes on to further explain with the three terms, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Each of these terms relates back to the salvation that was affected in Jesus Christ. In speaking of righteousness, Paul is referring to the aspect of salvation whereby the believer is put into a right standing before God. Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one who has ever lived a perfect life. And as a result, he is righteous. He is right with the Father. He is in a right standing with the Father. And when we trust in the perfect work of God's Son, we share Christ's righteousness. We share that righteousness with him. In Romans 4, 5, Paul writes this, 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, Christ's faith is credited as righteousness. When we place our faith in Christ alone, God actually credits us with perfect life. No longer does he look at us as those that are clothed in unrighteousness, but now he sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. In a sense, he exchanges our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. And you know what? That's not a bad deal, is it? For those of us who are told that we've been brought forth in in iniquity according to Psalm 51.5, we actually get to exchange our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. You know, this imputed righteousness, it's, it's undeserved. And yet it is offered to all who will humble themselves and come and follow Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ's righteousness, no one, I repeat, no one will be saved. No one will be put back into a right standing with God because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. So let those of us that have received Christ's righteousness, let us bask in it. Let us bask in this right standing that is now ours in God. Now, the next aspect of salvation that Paul makes reference to is sanctification or, or holiness. It is a term that describes the purity which should characterize the lifestyle of those who have been saved. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4 and verse 7, Paul writes this. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And then verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So it is through the enabling work of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is only available to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that the believer's life is to be set apart. They are to be set apart. They are to be different from how they once were before their salvation. This is Christianity. God saves us wherever we're at. He will save us. He will bring us into his family, but he will not keep us there. He will continue to grow us through the enabling power of his Holy Spirit so that we might be a people that are holy, a people that are set apart for his glory. And as we grow in our relationship with Christ, our lives begin to be transformed into Christ's image, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Our way of thinking, our way of acting begin to be more and more influenced by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we start to bear the fruit, right? To bear the fruit of what it means to be a Christian, to have that changed life. But again, it's all by what God has done, right? It is all by God's Holy Spirit working in us, not anything that we can boast about. The only reason we can walk in obedience is because we have God's Holy Spirit in us. So we don't get the credit. God gets the credit. Now, the third aspect of salvation that Paul references is redemption. This is a term that has to do more with deliverance. It is a term that had a rather rich uh, history among the Jewish people that uh, express their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. It is a word that has a greater emphasis on deliverance of captives under freedom, more so than a ransom by payment. Paul used the term to denote the believer's deliverance from the bondage of sin, as evidenced in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, where he writes this. He says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ is our redeemer in the sense that he delivers us from guilt, from hell, from sin, from the power of Satan, as well as from the grave. There is both a present and a future deliverance for the believer with the future deliverance coming at the time of our losing uh, these these sin-cursed bodies once and for all. The moment we lose these bodies, we have this, this full deliverance. We are set free from these bodies of death. And that is the future deliverance that is there for all believers. When we look at salvation, the wisdom of God manifested in Christ, we can't help but be amazed at the grace and at the mercy 
that has been lavished upon so unworthy a group. None of us, none of us are deserving of what is ours in Christ. None of us have earned it, and yet it is freely given. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just have to scratch my head and I have to just wonder why. Why would, why would God do such a thing for such a, a pathetic, insignificant, unappreciative bunch of people? I believe he gives us the answer to that question in the last verse of our text, in verse 31. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God confirms his matchless mercy by working in the hearts of a bunch of insignificant people just like you and me. And I'm sorry if I offend you by lumping you with me, but you know what? This is what we are. All human boasting is completely and totally eliminated when we come face to face with the wisdom that God displays to us in Christ. Only our union with Christ can bring about salvation. Man's wisdom is absolutely useless when it comes to salvation. Our confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. Our confidence needs to be upon his work upon the cross, not in our insignificant accomplishments. Take anything that you have ever done. Think of any accomplishment that you have ever brought about. And I want you to hold it up. And I want you to compare it to Christ's magnificent work upon the cross. I want you to take your thing that you're going to boast in And I want you to take that and I want you to take that and I want you to hold it up to the cross and what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. And I want you to compare the two. And let me just ask you, how small, how small does your great accomplishment, the thing that you are boasting in, how small does it look in comparison to Christ's work on that cross? How insignificant does it seem? Again, I I, I don't ask you these things to belittle you. I'm not trying to tear anybody down here. I only ask you to do this so that you might have both a proper view of yourself and a proper view of God. For many of you, I'm afraid, are not boasting in the Lord as you ought to. Instead, you're boasting in your house. You're boasting in your car. You're boasting in your toys. You're boasting in your business achievements. You're boasting in your retirement portfolio. You're boasting in whatever. Fill in the blank. So what are we going to do about that, brothers and sisters? What are you going to do? Are you going to continue to put your confidence in yourself or in your things? Or are you going to finally take that step of faith whereby you place your confidence your boast in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. The only way we can do this is to turn away from our pride and to start practicing humility. But I assure you, it will not be an easy thing to practice. Humility is not an easy thing to practice. It is elusive in the sense that your pride will not let you grasp it firmly. M.R. Dehan used to say this. He said, Humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. (laughs) Humility is indeed a strange thing because the minute you think you've got it, you've lost it. This morning we've opened up the Word of God together and we've, we've learned three things that we must do to be humble. And I trust that those things will impact your life in a radical way. These three truths were God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. And God's call of the insignificant confirms his matchless mercy. Now, brothers and sisters, Calvary Bible Church is a great church. And there are a lot of exciting and wonderful ministries and projects that are taking place here. And yet, if we're not careful, I fear 
that we could very easily go down the road of being a proud church. I think if we are not careful, we could begin to get puffed up with our knowledge such that we fail to have a right view of ourselves and we look down on others who maybe don't have what we have or they're not where we're at and therefore we view them as sub-Christian. We are not careful. We could very easily become a proud church. So let us remember that it is God himself who says that he opposes the proud but that he gives grace to the humble, according to James 4, 6. Let us be a church that encourages one another along in humility. Let us not become puffed up in our knowledge that we fail to remember just how insignificant we are in God's big scheme of things. Let us be a body of believers whose boast is in the God who loved us so much that he was willing to step out of heaven to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let our boast be in him and not ourselves. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time to be able to come together and to be able to open up your word. And Lord, I do just pray that your word will go forth with power and that you will continue to work in these hearts of ours, and that you will continue to show us our pride and those things that we are, are boasting in that are contrary to you. Lord, help us to just humble ourselves so that you might give us grace. Lord, may we never find ourselves fighting against you in any way, but rather, Lord, help us to seek to bring you glory and honor that which is rightfully yours. Help us to view ourselves properly. And Lord, help us to view you in all your glory and all your splendor and all your majesty. Lord, give us a right view of you. Thank you for these men and women that you have brought here today. I pray that your hand of grace and mercy will continue to be over them and that, Lord, you will continue to grow them in their pursuit of humility. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.